Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dizzy in the infinite inning, you struggle not to covet the things you don't want. I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, But many of us contain self-destructive impulses that lead us to desire things that we not only don't need, and at least with our rational mind, don't want, but we jones for them anyway, like a junkie craving a fix. Sometimes that self-destructive impulse expresses itself exactly that way, in addiction to drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or too much bad food, maybe biohazardous activities in the bedroom, the list goes on and on. I do think of myself as in recovery in some ways. Calling myself a recovering depression addict doesn't quite do my personal situation justice, but the process works something like this. Sadness is its own cause and effect, by which I mean that you have pain, emotional pain, sometimes unmotivated emotional pain, and if you have it for long enough, you'll do almost anything to solve that pain. For those that have come to terms with that pain, the fixes involve doing positive things, exercising, going for a walk in the park, really anything that channels that emotional energy and distracts you from the negative thoughts that you're thinking, which are really not thoughts in a rational way. They're almost spam from your brain. They're junk mail that is very difficult to ignore. For those that haven't come to terms with it, they try to self-medicate in any way possible. And that is what I mean by saying sadness engenders more sadness because often those behaviors are the most self-destructive that you can possibly imagine. And they often boomerang negatively and you end up back where you started except the level of pain has been squared or cubed or raised to the power of 10. I hasten to add that those patches that you attempt to apply to yourself don't have to be anything illegal or immoral. In my case, they're not. They're just something that is harmful to you. It might not even be harmful to somebody else. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of the example of Abraham Lincoln, who, a friend reported, said in his youth that he was too depressed to carry a knife for fear that he might harm himself. Now, A lot of people carry a knife, and I'm not talking about Crocodile Dundee style, that's a knife. I mean, talking about something you might cut an article with out of a paper or trim your fingernails. I used to carry a Swiss Army knife. I imagine that's the kind of thing he was referring to. That's not a weapon, it's a utility device. And yet he couldn't, because that was a danger to him. It wasn't to me, it probably isn't to you. When I'm confronted with my pain, I try to reason with myself. And I say to myself... If you got what you wanted, stupid, you'd be like the proverbial dog who caught the car. You wouldn't know what to do with it, and you'd probably be considerably damaged in the process of getting it. You might transiently satisfy some immediate need, but everything around you in the aftermath would be destroyed. And a smaller, still stupider voice says, Well, you don't know that for sure. Most of the time I can shake it off because I still have PTSD from the times that I listened. The call itself can be painful because there's a part of you that's unfulfilled, and the only thing that will fulfill it could also kill you. 
Maybe kill you literally, maybe kill you metaphorically. Depends on the case. In this context, I think of players like Daryl Strawberry a lot. Strawberry was an incredibly good player, a first overall draft pick and a star from the moment he reached the majors in 1983. He never did quite get to where people expected him to get, though, and maybe that was the audience's limitation because he was plenty good as it was, but it also seemed like he didn't feel like playing sometimes, especially on defense. He never seemed to have any interest in that, and despite having great speed, he tended to just pick a spot in the outfield and play there. There was a portion of the outfield in Shea Stadium known as the Strawberry Patch because he had stood there for so long the grass had died. But that was the smaller part of it. There was also the drug addiction. It was something that didn't become a huge part of his career until he left the Mets as a free agent after the 1990 season for the Dodgers. And it wasn't a stay that went well. He was fine at first, but he had injuries and then got popped for the substance abuse problems. And there was a comment that Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda made at that time as the Dodgers released Strawberry well before his contract was over, following a stay in a rehab facility, a caller to Lasorda's show called Strawberry a dog, and Lasorda seemingly leapt to his defense. You're wrong, he said. Daryl Strawberry is not a dog. A dog is loyal and runs hard after balls. It's a funny line. A really funny line. It's also somewhere most likely between a little and a lot unfair. Now, I have no doubt that In our world, there are some people who become drug addicts out of a sense of irresponsibility or pleasure-seeking or lack of judgment or self-preservation, and there's a good argument that a good way not to have to stop is to never start in the first place. That exists. I believe that. But I also believe that it's more complicated than that in many cases, and that until you've been inside somebody else's head, you can't necessarily judge them because you don't know what it was they were trying to medicate with what is literally medicine. In Steve Delson's book, True Blue, which is an oral history of the Dodgers, he has a series of alternating quotes by the relief pitcher Steve Howe and Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda. Howe, for those who are too young to remember, was the 1980 Rookie of the Year. He was a former first-round draft choice, was a left-handed closer, threw really hard, but beginning early in his career, he had trouble with cocaine, began missing practices and team flights and showing up late for games. And there were a number of suspensions and even at one point a lifetime ban that was overturned and Howe was reinstated, later having what seemed to be a stable period with the New York Yankees before finally retiring in 1996. Sadly, he was killed in an accident in 2006. Toxicology reports showed that he had methamphetamine in his system at the time, so he never truly beat it, despite having many opportunities to do so. In Delson's book, Howe talks about the stress he felt upon winning the Rookie of the Year award and going to a press conference for that. Then I walk into the room. There are cameras and lights and the hugest lineup of reporters I'd ever seen, but there was only one chair, and that was for me. You want to talk about scared to death? I started to get dry heaves. I went into the bathroom. Am I going to make a fool of myself? Am I going to sound arrogant? One of our players comes in. You nervous, kid? Yeah. Here, try this. What do you think it was? The next day, the paper said they loved me. I made a connection. Every time I felt uncomfortable, every time I felt fear, I could take this. I was 21 years old. My problem really wasn't on the field. The problem was everyday life. I couldn't cope. Lasorda responds, Steve Howe broke my heart. We were very close. But why in the hell would you take drugs? It's against the law. It's harmful to your body. It will lead you down the path of destruction. 
You can't tell me it's a disease. I never believed that. Never did, never will. How can it be a disease when you deliberately put something inside your body? That, to me, is a weakness. I don't care what anybody says. And a final response from Hal. Tommy was very frustrated and angry at me. Tommy used to make this statement. I'd look at a pack of cigarettes and ask who's stronger, the cigarette or me. Then he'd say, that's how I quit smoking. That tells you a lot about why he'd be angry. If he could put that down, then why couldn't anybody else? And the answer, how undoubtedly would have given, and that I will give, was that Lasorda could only see effects, not causes. And he may have disdained the effect. And you can disdain the effect. Hell, I disdain the effect. But until you understand, sympathize, empathize with the cause, you're never going to solve the problem. I'm Stephen Goldman, and this is the Infinite Inning Baseball Podcast. It's 1965, the Beatles are at Shea Stadium, and you've got tickets. You sit pensively in the front row, awaiting the arrival of cute Paul, intelligent John, quiet one George, and whatever the hell he is, Ringo. The PA announcer says, The Beatles! A scream goes up. You faint. You wake up in a police car. You didn't hear a single song. You didn't hear a single note. And yet, you still tell everyone you know, for years afterwards, right down to your grandchildren, that you were there that night, and that you were here in episode 14. You'll hear this a little more clearly because there's less screaming. Usually those little introductions are just made up off the top of my head, but this one was kind of autobiographical. Not that I'm old enough to have been at Shea Stadium for the Beatles, that was before I was born, but quite recently... Right before recording this episode, I actually had a very similar experience to that, and I am very grateful to be here in episode 14, where I will be joined by David Roth in just a moment. And if I sound a little fatigued talking to David, it's not David's company, which is scintillating as always, it's just that I was still a little out of it after being literally knocked off my feet. I'm okay, and I appreciate your patience. David, too, was knocked off his feet in a way because, as we'll discuss as part of our wide-ranging conversation, that his home base, Vice Sports, was suddenly and deliberately attacked by its corporate masters. I rather unintentionally quoted Franklin Roosevelt there, but the result was the same. It came to an unexpected, wrenching, and permanent end. And I think it was brave of David to come on and have a rather jaunty discussion about both life and the baseball season, which must seem rather trivial at this moment in time. But as I said in the introduction, sometimes those kinds of distractions are the most valuable thing you can have at a bad moment. So I take it you've heard about the magic bullet in the JFK assassination case. I wanted to talk very briefly today about the magic bottle. The magic bottle relates to the upcoming non-waiver trading deadline, which, as I record this, we are less than a week away from because it is one of the incidents that led to the creation of that deadline in the first place. It's always surprising to think about the fact that for many years, teams simply played the hand they were dealt out of spring training. 
mid-season trades did not happen. They weren't sporting. And so you didn't see a player go from one contender to another somewhere around the middle of the year. If you had a dead shortstop, if you only had three pitchers and you needed four, well, too bad. You weren't winning the pennant that year. Or you'd better hope that the other guy was also short a starter and a shortstop. In 1922, because the Yankees had a special relationship with Harry Frazee, owner of the Boston Red Sox, that changed. It was a strange year in that the main competitor for the pennant with the Yankees, who were just in their second year of being pennant-winning kind of guys, was the St. Louis Browns. This was probably the best Browns team aside from the 1944 unit that won the pennant. This was the one that had George Sisler hitting 420 and Urban Shocker, a former and future Yankee, winning about 24 games. And it had this really good outfield of Baby Doll Jacobson and Jack Tobin, both of whom were 300 hitters, and Ken Williams, who had what was at that time baseball's only 30-30 season in history. The Browns were actually a few games ahead of the Yankees at midseason, but by the time September came around, the Yankees had pulled ahead by half a game. This was partially because Babe Ruth was having his year of personal hell, having been suspended by Judge Landis for illegally barnstorming after the prior World Series and getting into a number of on-field scrapes with umpires and going into the stands and trying to beat people up. He was kind of in crisis at that moment, so that tended to hold the team back. Now, one other problem that the Yankees had was that their third baseman, a future Hall of Famer named Home Run Baker, was starting to slow down, and it was clear they needed help at that position. On July 22nd, they made a deal with the Red Sox, in which they sent a bag of junk and $50,000 north to the perennially strapped Boston Red Sox owner Harry Frazee, and in return, they got third baseman Jumpin' Joe Dugan. Now, from our vantage point, it's very hard to see why anybody would care that much about Joe Dugan. First of all, he was literally unreliable. His nickname referred to the fact that whenever he was unhappy in a slump, maybe somebody booed him a little hard, he'd just leave. He would jump the club. He was also a 280 hitter when 300 hitters were pretty common. He had no power. He didn't walk. But people did think he was a good fielder for what that's worth. When the trade went down, the people of St. Louis were outraged. The Chamber of Commerce even passed a resolution deploring the trade. They wrote, and this is a bit ironic for a Chamber of Commerce to be writing, If the holder of the biggest purse is to decide pennant races, the sooner the game follows the tainted sports of the past, the better. No red-blooded American can cheer while a team that purchases the pennant as the highest bidder romps on to victory over less fortunate, smaller, and consequently more moderately financed clubs. If the dollar mark is to be the emblem of victory in the baseball world, the American people will have to take more seriously the detrimental disclosure of the past and fairly judge that it is true that baseball has sold its birthright. I assume the detrimental disclosure of the past is the Black Sox thing and that they're making an analogy here and saying that one way or another that penance are paid for. Almost concurrently, the New York Giants, who were fighting it out for the pennant with the St. Louis Cardinals, sent three players and $100,000 to Boston for a pitcher. Not the Red Sox this time, the Braves. This only raised tensions and cemented the idea that the New York clubs were playing by a different set of rules. As the St. Louis Post-Dispatch noted at the time of the Dugan deal, 
Sport and editorial writers have taken notice of the deal as hardly savoring of the true sportsmanship that should characterize the American national game. And it seems to be the consensus of opinion that if New York will never be satisfied with permitting a good team to fight it out on an even basis, but must make every pennant a sure thing by purchasing the cream of the players at any time it feels the need of new blood, then baseball is on its last legs. When the Yankees came to St. Louis on September 16th, they led by half a game, and tempers in the capacity crowd at Sportsman's Park were high. Now here's all you really need to know. The Yankees led the game 2-1, going to the bottom of the ninth. The Yankees' outfield configuration was this. Babe Ruth played left field. He did that a lot. He's not part of this story. Bob Musel was in right, and in center field was Whitey Witt. He's a player I find really fascinating. He was born Ladislaw Waldemar Witkowski, and he came into the majors in an unusual way. When Connie Mack broke up his great team of 1909 to 1914, the club that won four pennants in three World Series, he was willing to play just about anybody, and Witt was one of the players he came up with. He was a rookie, the starting shortstop, on the 1916 A's, which is one of the worst teams in history. It went 36 and 117, which is a 235 winning percentage. Not even this year's Phillies can quite do that. He hit 245. He fielded 903 on 78, count them, 78 errors. Now that said, he turned into a pretty decent player after he moved to the outfield. He started hitting. He drew a whole lot of walks, leading the league at one point. And in April 1922, Mack sold him to the Yankees, where he was the starting center fielder on some very good teams. Leading off the ninth, the Browns' third baseman, Eddie Foster, hit a long drive to right center. Witt and Musel converged on it. It was actually Musel who camped under it. But as Witt was running towards him, a bottle, a soda bottle, came flying out of the stands and hit him smack in the forehead. He was running at it when it happened. He dropped as if he were shot. Both teams, cops, even fans, rushed onto the field and crowded around the spot where he fell. There's a picture of that moment, and the outfield's just a sea of white shirts. They weren't real careful about keeping people off the field in those days. He was unconscious, bleeding. Several of his teammates picked him up and carried him off the field. He had suffered a mild concussion and a gash that went all the way down to the bone. There's a very strange picture of him bandaged up in the next day's paper. I'll tweet it out once this episode goes up. He looks like he's morphing into a Planet of the Apes character with lipstick. It's very odd and must have been doctored in some way. Anyhow, the immediate reaction was of outrage, and to give credit to the St. Louis fans, there were cries from the stands of forfeit the game to the Yankees. The initial reaction by Brown's ownership was to set up a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest of the bottle thrower and ban the sale of soda in the stands, which must have been great for beer sales. Oh, wait, it was Prohibition. And the American League president, Ban Johnson, threw in a $1,000 reward for the same information. Ultimately, though, no one was ever caught and baseball wasn't real serious about pursuing it. This is where the magic bottle comes in. See... The pennant race was raging on, and Johnson didn't want to exacerbate the bad feelings, so what was ultimately accepted was no one had thrown the bottle. It had been lying there, snake-like in the grass, waiting for Wit to run into it, step on it in just the right way, that it flipped up in the air, did a somersault, and came back at his forehead at high velocity, knocking him unconscious and cutting him down to the skull. Hey, I buy it. I guess the bottle was a Browns fan. After all that, baseball took its extant trading deadline, August 1st, a rule no one really tested, and moved it all the way back to June 15, 
designed, I think, to discourage these kinds of trades altogether. And that, boys and girls, is the beginning of the trade deadline as we know it. Before we leave this topic, you know the two great lines associated with Joe Dugan, right? One was his description of playing for the 1927 Yankees. He said, It's always the same. Coombs walks, Koenig singles, Ruth hits one out of the park, Gehrig doubles, Lazari triples, and then Dugan goes down in the dirt on his can. In 1948, Dugan would be one of Babe Ruth's pallbearers along with Wait Hoyt. It was a hot day, and the coffin was heavy, and Dugan said, Man, I could use a beer. Hoyt nodded, saying, So could the babe. I'll be back with David Roth in just a moment. A gentle rain falls on New Jersey and I assume on New York as well as we welcome David Roth back to the program. How are you, David? I'm all right, man. How are you? I'm good. I, I'm good. And I want to thank you for doing this. I, I thought you might want to take a pass on this one because, and stop me if you don't want to get too far into this, David, but people are, are probably aware that Vice Sports, where you were on staff and I contributed on a freelance basis, just sort of summarily ceased to exist, poof, last week. And so we are in the immediate aftermath of what had to be a very difficult series of days. Yeah, it was a, diffi- it was a difficult series of days. I, I, I even lost the ability to speak, as you heard there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, you know, sad because I really did enjoy working with those people and, and painful because... You know, I don't get to do that anymore. But uh, the the crucial thing that happened uh, is that in the intervening period between when I was laid off late morning on Friday and when I speak to you tonight on Monday night as a gentle rain falls on New York City, uh, I spent two days just jumping into a lake and drinking like macro brews out of cans. <laughs> and it was extremely helpful for me. And I feel a lot better. I mean, it's, you know, how it is to be laid off. I mean, I think everybody that's listening uh, has had some sort of experience of separation that way. And so I know that this is not going to be the sort of thing where I'm just going to whistle my way through the entirety of my severance package and feel delighted at having the privilege to do that the whole time. I mean, I have that feeling that you get sometimes when you are aware that you're getting ready to come down with something. And in my case, it's like some uh, crushing case of ennui as opposed to a cold but it comes with the territory and I think it, it does somehow get easier with time. Like in this case, it's, you know, I'm already interested in thinking about what's going to happen next. And also when I can get back to that lake. Well, I think both are very healthy. And I think that unlike me, I've written about other sports at different times, football, tennis, basketball, once very badly and under protest, after which I was told that I would not be asked to do that again. I would like to know the basketball story, but go ahead, finish your thought. Oh, man. I Well, the, the point being that since you are more versatile than I am, I think this is Woody Allen's joke that being bisexual doubles your chances of getting a date on Saturday night. I think similarly you will have more opportunities than those of us who are just purely hardball aficionados. I mean, it's hard to say. At this point, that's the part of it that I really have tried not to think too much about. I mean, I I hope that I'll be able to find something else. It's just a very difficult time uh, looking around the industry to feel a great deal of optimism about 
where it's all going. I mean, the good news is that people still care about sports and they still like to read, but man, the rest of it is really extremely murky to me. And while I have to trust that there's people far smarter than me working on it, I would absolutely love it if they could hurry up and figure it out. Cause it's just, it's weird to look around I mean, even before this, before it came for me, so many talented people over the last couple months just saw their positions disappear for the most opaque of reasons, and that's bleak. If if there was, if I thought that people really didn't care about baseball anymore, I think that would bump me out more. As it is, I feel like there's it's a problem to solve. I just don't know what the solution is. Baseball is hard because it's a very crowded arena. There are a lot of different sites that are doing it, and the the kind of of high tone, high analysis stuff that say baseball prospectus did that has, I was going to say metastasized and that's a very negative word, (laughs) (laughs) but it, it has spread. It's been absorbed into the mainstream. So there's, there's no kind of unique foothold anybody really has anymore. Everybody has those same tools. Whereas 25 years ago, those, it was only those of us who had read and absorbed Bill James who went out to spread that gospel. And so now I, we're seeing kind of a narrowing. But the thing that is weird to me, and maybe this was one of the people you were referring to, uh, Ken Rosenthal, who was deaccessioned by Fox summar- summarily, at least from their online aspect, he'll still be doing television. They just decided we are not going to have words anymore. We are just going to do video. And it seems like the sports end device has been kind of reduced to that as well. And I, I didn't know when we voted or as a group we decided, or maybe it's it's a, a the, the current generation has decided that we're just not going to have words. We're going to have Instagrams and we're going to have GIFs and we're going to have quick videos. But I don't understand that. You know, it, it's much easier to consume the written word than it is to stop and play and listen to a video. I'm going to tread very lightly because there is a non-disparagement clause in the termination thing. And also, in this case, I don't actually think that what Vice is doing, I, I don't know what it is yet, and I'm not saying that in a, in an attempt to disparage my former employer. I, want to, I hasten to mention that. I, I really just don't know. Uh, I think that there is going to be an emphasis on video because there's an emphasis on video everywhere, but I, I don't know that they're not totally getting rid of sports. I think they're trying to sort of figure out a, a different way to do it. To me, what's weird about video uh, and the emphasis on video is that as far as I know, the internet is still mostly consumed by bored people at work, sometimes on their phones and sometimes on their computers. And like watching a two minute video of Jason Whitlock talking about how Colin Kaepernick needs to hug more <laughs> cops. Like that is a dick move in any workplace. Don't, you know, like, first of all, no one wants to hear it. And second of all, like, just don't, I mean, I don't think anybody really wants the stuff. This is the part of it that's so difficult for me to kind of get my head around. It's, it's hard to get people to read. You know, it's always been hard to get people to read. But like the video, if you look at what Fox Sports website looks like in the absence of Ken Rosenthal's words and everybody else's, it's just this endless scroll of videos of the same four or five guys talking in a strident way about whatever one of the bigger stories of that day was. And it's just, I can't, their traffic has cratered since they did that. And I think deservedly so. The idea that you would put yourself through the experience of watching that beyond the, you know, the other problems that Fox Sports has in terms of its, I would say, obviously and disastrously low regard for its audience. The idea of videos 
that people don't really watch somehow be more appealing to advertisers than words that people might conceivably read is, I mean, I, I don't think that's a problem for writers and editors. I mean, I think that that's, it's an advertiser issue and I know that nobody's really going to be able to stand up to them or re you can't reason with a brand. Right. That's one of the lessons we've learned this millennium, but man, it just really is weird. Like I don't understand the incentives beyond the, you know, the obvious wish to give advertisers exactly what they want. One problem I understand with podcasts and monetizing podcasts or getting advertisers to buy in is they don't know for certain that when you download whoever your favorite podcast is, maybe this one, if, I, if I'm going to be uh, both uh, optimistic and egotistical, but more likely, let's say Mark Marin or somebody like that. And Mark Marin stops and pauses his show and talks about how great Blue Apron is for a while and how they I'm not auditioning for a Blue Apron ad, by the way. I was about to do the whole text because I've heard it so many times that they'll home deliver you all the ingredients and you can just throw them together and have a meal. You don't know whether someone is going to take their mouse and click ahead a little bit and just cut that part out. Similarly, in a story that we might write, they can put any kind of ad in it, whether it's a popover, whether it's one of those things that says like scroll down to keep reading and you have to force the ad up sort of through as if you're passing a kidney stone. That is something that's an annoyance that you ignore and they know they don't get value out of that. With a video ad, at least they can force you to sit through an ad, a, a commercial before you get to that golden Jason Whitlock moment. Right. That's the part of it that I, I'm not sure totally scans. And again, like there's nobody dumber than me about stuff like this. Like there might be, but they like they don't let them out of the home unaccompanied. Like this is I don't I don't get any of the shit. I want to be very clear about that. But I feel like that just in some ways, yes, I mean, it does. It, an advertiser knows that you know, that video will be watched, but that puts more pressure, I think, on this, the site that's producing the videos, because in order to get somebody to sit through a Geico ad, which is the sort of thing that you can get watching, you know, CSI Miami and reruns on any of the five stations where it's currently airing, what's on the other side of that that's worth it? And if it's like Colin Coward talking about how, like, he thinks that John Wall's dad is probably a pretty bad guy, then like, why would you? Why would you do it? The Geico ad is the best part of that video. Like, you can watch the ad if you want. Maybe it's got the caveman in it. But then, like, close out. Like, you don't need to hear Colin Coward talking about that shit. I mean, I don't, it's strange. I mean, I feel like if video were better, like, if it were worth sitting through commercials for, you know, maybe then there would be that case. But as it is, I think it's just sort of, this is uh, an unease on the part of advertisers that seems kind of, uh, they'd have to be able to explain why it is that they're so much more comfortable with having their ads run before the stuff that it runs before. Because I, I can't imagine it's a quality issue. And I don't think that it's a, you know, a numbers issue either. It's not a bright side, really. And I don't mean to make light of what you've gone through. But as you know, throughout our mutual association with Vice Sports, I would periodically ask you to define for me what a Vice Sports story was. What made a Vice Sports story uniquely Vice as opposed to something that might run anyplace else? And I, I'm not meaning to fault you on this. I just never felt like I had a good answer about that. You always just told me to write the best story that I could and in the best way that I could in my voice. And that's what I did. 
but I felt like there should have been more bungee jumping in it or more consuming of MDMA in there somewhere. <laughs> like, I, I don't feel like there was a match between at least the content I was doing and what I think that that sort of the, the publication's mentality is about. And I, I never really associated you exactly with that either. So I'm, I guess it will remain a mystery for me for all time. Some of that is probably just the anxiety of, you know, it is a, it's a youth brand and neither you nor I are youth individuals. And so the, the challenge of that is just, you know, you don't want to do the, uh, Steve Buscemi, hello, fellow kids, meme, <laughs> you know, in print form, if you can avoid it. But I think that, I mean, the way that we defined it, you know, you fit within it very well. And it was capacious enough to also include, you know, Corbin Smith's avant-garde basketball writing and Patrick Ruby's actual richly detailed, basically almost like a business journalism stuff about the NCAA. I think that the idea of trying to do it as well as we could, it I mean, how good or bad the fit with sports and vice is, is again, something that I can't speak on. I think that they've been doing it I mean, I was writing sports columns for them in 2012. They were just sort of edging into the the field then. I mean, they never really, at that point, there was not really like a big effort to have there be a vice sports. I mean, it's there. I mean, I think for us, the part that I'm proudest of with the site, there's two things, I guess. The site itself, I think that we way punched above our weight and did a good job with the work that we did, but also did in sort of a way that was never really like laid out in a formal like best practices document. Like we knew what we were trying to do and we knew we wanted to do it professionally, but the idea generally was just to to do our site well and to trust that doing it well enough would be enough and that it would be enough to attract an audience, that it might be enough to win awards, and it was all those things. It's just the other stuff is the other stuff. The stuff that we can't control is stuff we can't control. And I can't say that it's right or wrong. I just know that if I can't control it, as with so many other things in my life, I'm, I'm better off not worrying about it. And so I tried to take care of the stuff that I could take care of, which meant, you know, trying to get everything right, trying to get the, the stories as good as we could do them. And I think that we succeeded in that to, you know, the greatest degree that we could. The other thing that I, that I would say that I'm proud of with working there, though, the part that I'm sadder about, because, you know, there'll be other good, there are other good sports sites, you know, like, and if I'm lucky, I'll get to work at one of them. The thing that's that I think was really unique about what we had there as a team in a way that I have not experienced at any other workplace, like really had become friends and, and were very sort of close with each other. And for me, given some of the stuff that I went through at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, some of which, again, I could control, some of which I couldn't, I was in you know, I think the worst place I've been in my life emotionally, you know, and in terms of my health, my mental health or whatever, uh, as I've ever been. And there was definitely like a viable case for canning me in January or February, I think. Not because I, I wasn't showing up or anything, but because I, I was having a really hard time and I wasn't really able to do a lot of the stuff I was supposed to do. And from Jorge on down, everybody that I dealt with, instead of cutting bait, really told me what I needed to do, helped me work out a beat for me to be on. Eric Nussbaum and, and Patrick Ruby did a lot for that. They advocated for me. They told me when I was right, when I was wrong. I got a lot of support from my other writers always. I am so appreciative of, you know, not just like the fact that we had a good time joking around with each other on Slack or whatever, which is the sort of thing you can do anywhere, that the the kindness that I received from them 
all the way up and down the line, you know, big and small, is the greatest uh, privilege that I've had as a, a working person. I, I've never received anything like the support like that. And it got me back to the point where, you know, I feel like now I'm doing good work again. I'm feeling better. You know, there's still a lot of stuff that I'm, I'm happy about, but at least I know the types of stories I want to write again. And I think I'd really lost sight of that. And, you know, I owe them a great deal for that. So I can't say a bad thing about any of the people I worked with. No, that speaks very well of everyone. And I had, to a much lesser extent, the same series of positive interactions, perhaps less personal because I was a freelancer. But as you were saying that, I was just reflecting on the fact that a few weeks ago on this show, I had Eric Steven on, who we both worked with at SB Nation, maybe me more than you. And I was there three years and you form certain relationships when you're in a job. You feel maybe not in every case as familial as the, the situation that you're describing, but you do feel like these relationships are going to be with you for a long time. But the fact is, and this is not to say anything negative about anyone, it's not. I think it's just part of life. That when you're not there, or for that that matter, if they're not there, I could have stayed and they could have left, that th when th that daily interaction is absent, some of those bonds start to fray. And, and just in the same way that you don't talk to everybody you went to college with at the same rate that you did when you were bumping into them between classes, there there is sort of a centrifugal force. And you lose that special thing. It turned out to be very fragile and to be created by that environment. Yeah, I think, and I, it is, it's unique, especially under that sort of pressure. For me, I think one of the things that, that helped was that I started going into the office more, which was something that, you know, at SB Nation was not really even an, an option in a lot of cases. Everybody's far flung. Eric's in Los Angeles. You're in New Jersey. I, uh, for the entire time that I was at SB Nation was on a futon uh, <laughs> in my home. But in this case, it was, just the process of, of sort of going there and being with everybody. It's amazing, you know, given the, the way that, uh, that things like Slack or in our day at SB Nation Campfire worked. It's like, you're never too depressed to like log onto a computer. You know, I mean, it wasn't like I was living my best life at that period, but like I also wasn't late for work, you know, like I could still, <laughs> still turn my computer on by nine in the morning every day. Yeah. It's tough though. I mean, with all of that stuff, with any of this stuff, it's that essential contradiction or conflict or whatever. I mean, I think of my work life as being the least real part of my life, you know, that I have, I have my wife, I have my turtles, I have my close friends that I've had in many cases for, you know, decades. And those are the people that I, most of my life happens with those people. And then I would think that like the, the time that I spend making puns at other people on Twitter or editing somebody's copy at work, the hours of that add up to, to the point where that is really the thing that I probably do spend most of my time doing. And there's just still something about it that seems less real. That sort of nexus of the things that we believe our lives to actually consist of versus the, the actual, you know, sort of arithmetical fact of what we spend most of our, our days doing. That's a very sort of contested place in my mind. For me, I, you know, it's different. I think other people either have an easier time drawing those lines or don't bother drawing them at all and, you know, just sort of have their work also be their life. But that's that's always been something I've guarded against a lot. I agree with that. And I mean, particularly in this day and age, it's not just work which sprawls. And I have looked back on certain jobs I've had where 
I neglected things outside of work, family, friends, special occasions that I had to drop out of because I had deadlines that had to be met, which may not have even been my deadlines really, but were editing other people's copy that was late and things like that. And have asked myself retrospectively, in the long run, what did that really get you except pictures in, in people's albums that you're not in? Because you you weren't there. It certainly didn't earn you, generic you or me, the permanent loyalty and appreciation of the people that you worked for. And then the other aspect of it that you mentioned, the social media aspect, there is a temptation to let kind of virtual relationships that are 140 characters long at a shot sort of subsume actual relationships, but it's it's so much easier to do because there's no opportunity cost or limited opportunity cost to that, as opposed to having to get up off your couch, pull on pants and take the subway down to whatever bar or restaurant you would meet people at to have that conversation. And that conversation, once you're there, you have to get your money's worth. So maybe you're there an hour and a half, two hours. Whereas again, 140 characters, you can shoot that off and binge watch something on Netflix. I agree with everything that you said, especially the assumption that I would not be wearing pants while I was on the couch. <laughs> I do just just full disclosure. I am actually fully dressed right now. I am wearing a, a respectable pair of jeans, and I'm appropriately attired. Same. I'm dressed like a beekeeper. <laughs> like I'm wearing I'm wearing one of those weird masks. The whole thing. This is just it's what I wear when I cook because I'm really um, I hate stains. <laughs> If you must know, I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, it's a Mike Pelfrey t-shirt. It says, Go Big Pelf on it. It was Impulse Buy online. You can still get them on there, but they're like $28 or something. It's, you'd have to, it has to be a drunken impulse, and you have to really be sure that you want a Mike Pelfrey t-shirt. It's in the Mets colors. It dates back to his time with the team. Uh, I think what many Pelf heads, I think they call themselves Pelfies, will remember as the, uh, the highlight of his career. Uh, as opposed to the the times he spent pitching long relief for the Twins. That's that's always the risky thing about pitchers. Uh, most famously, maybe Mark Fidrich with the Tigers in the 70s, that they can kind of rocket up the pop charts and rocket right back down again just as quickly, especially if you are a Pelfrey kind of guy and you're hoping your fielders make up for a whole lot of sins in terms of what your pitches don't do at the plate. Oh, man. I mean, of all the, the pitchers that have been done some cosmic injustice by being on the Mets. I mean, like Pelfrey, we know who he is at this point, but I mean, it's amazing that they could develop a pitcher who pitches that way and then put behind him the infields that they continue to put behind him. It's a, like, it's not, it's not cruel. I mean, but it is prankish. It is the sort of thing where it's like kind of got a, uh, like a punked vibe to it. Like a, you know, we've put a, ground ball pitcher out there and uh we've got different versions of lucas duda at all four infield positions <laughs> let's watch like it has that kind of like, <laughs> like sadistic element to it that mets touch it's what makes them such a fun team to follow it sounds like one of those old, old disney or warner brothers cartoons there there's a goofy how-to series you know how to play baseball or bugs bunny pitching and you know they couldn't be bothered to figure out a whole team so it's just nine goofies on the field which is like that's the idea of that is honestly pretty appealing to me. I <laughs> There was a, when I was at the lake house this weekend, my friend's son, who is a four years old, completely crazy for baseball. And like, I'm not, I'm not going to grade his tools because like he like still goes in the lake with his socks on. Like there's, it's too early to say, but he's, he is very coordinated and cares about baseball. He has a set of toys that are just called baseball guys, 18 molded plastic baseball guys. 
uh, there's fielders and a pitcher and a catcher and a batter, and then the same on the other side. And it is, <laughs> like, beyond... If you thought that Nine Goofies was bad, like, uh, everybody kind of looking exactly the same in molded plastic, and also they're all right-handed. <laughs> like, you have to be four years old and really care about baseball to be like, yeah, baseball guys, good purchase. Thanks, Dad. There's apparently a booster pack you can buy where, like, it has left-handed guys in it. What you really need before you buy the booster pack is a side-arming right-hander molded in plastic, and he can just mow down those right-handed hitters. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's that. Hopefully, that's like other stuff that's in the booster pack. Is uh, it's like a pinch runner that's much skinnier than the other ones. There is a yeah. There's a side armor. <laughs> there's there's like a, a manager who shouldn't be wearing a uniform because he <laughs> he looks like David Paymer. Matt Stairs, the actual Matt Stairs. Yeah, you can. If there was a such a thing as a molded plastic Matt Stairs available uh, for purchase online, I would already own it. Yeah, I think there'd be quite the competition on eBay. I've been. This was something that one of the sad things about having to return my computer is that I I had amassed what I'd like to consider to be an industry leading collection of images of ungainly baseball players of the eighties and nineties that saved the images to my desktop and then would use them as appropriate uh, to augment points that I was trying to make online or, or uh, in Slack. And I lost all my Bob Horner JPEGs. And they're out there. I can download them. I have to start fresh on the new computer I bought today. But there's, I feel like there is something lost in that. Like, I also like, you know, I hope that it won't bother them, but the IT guys that are in charge of wiping my computer and the, like, the last thing they're going to see is this guy downloaded a Sid Bream Fleer card, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like minutes before he was canned. He was just, that's how secure he was. He wanted to get a picture of an ugly guy and his worst baseball card iteration. One of my all-time favorite baseball stories, and this isn't in any book, this is just something I remember hearing on the radio or seeing in the media at that time was that between 87 and 88, the Yankees signed Jack Clark away from the Cardinals. So they needed a new first baseman. And they went ahead and signed Bob Horner. And I guess they hadn't told Whitey Herzog before the media got to him. So some writer went up to him and said, how do you feel about signing Bob Horner? And Herzog said, that fat slob, I wouldn't want him for a million dollars. And they said, no, 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 no. You have Bob Horner. You just signed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh well, I I'm sure he'll 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 be great. Yeah, you knew that Whitey wasn't going to be with the Cardinals too many more years at that point. Oh my gosh, when you're choosing Bob Horner over Whitey Herzog too, like your franchise needs a reboot. <laughs> the Horner that they got, I remember this because this was there's a particular Bob Horner photo, and I say this as a connoisseur of Bob Horner photos that appeared on the back. So he was with the Braves. He had his good seasons, you know, which were actually very good. He had a lot of homers. So he went to Japan. Things didn't work out. He came back and suddenly looked like he was 15 years older. Like, there's a picture of him on the back of the Fleer card that he had from the one year that he was with the Cardinals. His career was over when he was, I think he was like 30 or 32. And that was the last year that he had. And he looks like... You've seen Office Space? Yes. I assume. So he looks like Richard Real, the guy that's like, I'm a people person. I facilitate. <laughs> but he came back, he was a baseball player, like a paunchy, permed baseball player when he left. And then he came back and he was he was that guy. He was the guy in the full body cast from Office Space. The famous story about that also is that I guess the first day of spring training, Whitey had everybody running laps and he found Horner just sitting in the dugout. And he said, why aren't you out there? And Horner said, I'm fatigued. I'm too tired. And Whitey was, it was the first day of spring training. How could he be all in? But he was all in. 
they don't make them like that. I mean, they do probably make them like that at this point. But looking back at the the Horner photos, it's just that the the conditioning of baseball players during the 1980s is so. I mean, I envy it just in the sense that it makes it in some ways more impressive that those guys were such effective players because in many cases, these are guys that like, like I would imagine them just like taking golf carts to go short distances <laughs> wherever possible. Like these are not guys, the whole, like the late 80s Pittsburgh Pirates, the personal grooming of, and just the general aesthetic of that team is, it's, you know, it's 25 guys in a bowling alley, <laughs> uh, all hitting on the same girl with the same lines. Like it's the same haircuts, the same mustaches. Sometimes there's perms, sometimes there's not, uh, which is really the only distinction. And like, they just don't make them like that anymore. I mean, there's still a lot of bad haircuts in baseball. Uh, I don't, I would never take that away from these guys that have done so much to advance the cause of whatever it is that Charlie Blackman is going for. <laughs> but the idea of that there was just a time when baseball was played by guys who were not even passively physically fit and yet we're still able to hit homers is uh it, it blows my mind to this day and i think it maybe even blew my mind when i was a kid because i was like that guy is not a better runner than my dad and yet he's and yet he's the second baseman on the mets are we talking the pirates of mike spanky lavalier or earlier yes. than that yes uh spanky bob walk zane smith the handsome boys i believe they were known <laughs> at the time Look out, ladies. The handsome boys are on the town. The handsome boys are in town, and Bob Walk wants to know your sign. Bob Walk had a long, not terribly illustrious career, but there there were a couple of stretches where he just turned into this unbeatable pitcher for a short period of time. They were a good team in the late 80s, and I think that was part of, again, like what added to the awe for me, because like they were just a bunch of just lumpy whites, like some of the lumpiest whites that have ever been successful at baseball. And Walk was he was always real sloppy looking. He's an announcer for them now, and he's like got a, a haircut you could set your watch by. He seems like he's doing great. But yeah, all those guys, Doug Drabeck, uh, really had some some interesting looks during that period. Like kind of a like a like if Jean Claude Van Damme uh, like didn't eat a healthy diet, like that sort of aesthetic. Yeah, I, I remember sort of a, a a kind of a wet perm look on Doug Drabeck at first. Uh-huh. That that could be my imagination. It's a wet perm look for sure. Uh, there's there was a mustache that was uh, pretty solid. There's a card again. This is one of the the cards that I lost that I have to go seek out. There's a a Donruss Studio card. It's one of my favorite baseball card lines that ever existed. It was at a time when people were buying baseball cards like crazy, and the baseball card companies were just not ready for that level of attention. Yes, and so they were just kind of flailing about for ideas and. The idea that Donruss came up with with the studio card was we're just gonna send these fucking guys to Sears and like see what happens. <laughs> and so they they just sent them there, and they're all sort of uh, you know in some cases like the Diesel guys would like get their shirts off, but the rest of them it's just like it's Doug Jones sitting there in like a hat, looking <laughs> kind of like I would say like half asleep, and then he's photographed in black and white, and then on the back they would have like a like those like playmate of the month type questions where they'd be like, you know, <laughs> what's your favorite type of salad? Or uh, I remember on Alvin Davis's Don Russ studio card when they asked, uh, who are your heroes? And he said, Jesus Christ and Harold Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a really fantastic answer. And so that was, 
I mean, it was a ridiculous set. There is a Doug Drabeck Donra studio card that, like, I uh, just can't get enough of the shit. Like, the look on his face. It's just, like, if the... I don't know. Like, uh, if the Terminator weighed 180 pounds, <laughs> like he's clearly going for some really intense stuff, and yet at the same time, you're just kind of like, do you need, a like, a snack? Like, a V8 or something? Like, are you okay? That's still a better sort of back-of-the-baseball card stuff than I remember. And my first set was maybe top 77 or 78, something like that, and I was quite young, and the the back of the cards would say, Bob Johnson's off-season hobbies include hunting and abusing minorities. Yeah, it's all it was all rip-and-run stuff from the press guides until, like, 1995. So the job that I had, because I worked in the baseball card business for a few years, 10 years ago, and which is a crazy thing to say, and I would never have thought to apply for a job there, an editorial job or a writing job, you know, in any way, if I hadn't been given a bunch of cards by a roommate, just like sort of, he was moving out to go to graduate school and he, as a gift, gave me a bunch of weird basketball cards. And on the back of them, there was these little, like, kind of voicey feature things. You know, they were short. I mean, they were like 35 or 50 words, you know, like a few sentences. But they were, it was actual writing and it had like quotes from newspapers and, you know, like they had hired a writer, but it was definitely at the time when they were really blowing up, they just didn't have any of that. This is the thing that made it so amazing at Tops, you know, when I got there to find out about what it had been like for so long, but it was just like four guys in a printing plant under the BQE in Brooklyn. <laughs> and it was like, and the, the printing plant, it had like, like to say that it had a rodent problem is like really like it's it's unfair to the people that work there because like technically the rodents owned the the printing plant and they like were paid rent every month like these were like unionized rodents these were like well established <laughs> <laughs> and then there'd be like five guys and a paper cutter that would just like show up and run off a card set every year and then it had become like a real at this point a you know it's a high tech operation like any other business concern but for a long time it really was super analog and so all the like the the garbage that i remember from the back of cards where it was like hit a ground rule double against reds like eight five eighty eight and then there'd be something about like i remember uh greg <laughs> greg harris the pitcher not the padres one but the guy that threw with both hands yep. the one with the glasses he, i remember like on the back of one of his cards that it said that his hobby was napping <laughs> Which blew my mind as like a twelve year old or something. I was like, I didn't know that that was like on the the list of options. Like, I thought it. I find that downright inspiring now. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, can I pick that up as a hobby? Like, I think even then, I knew that I had an aptitude for it. I just didn't know that it was the sort of thing that I could claim I'm gonna practice my naps, something like that. Like that sentence would never have occurred to me. So just to set the record on Bob Walk straight, because this was this was bugging me. Bob Walk was a rookie on the pennant-winning 1980 Philadelphia Phillies, came up, went 6-0. and A lot of it was run support. He had a kind of high ERA. It was something in the fours, and at that time, a, a four really meant something high. He finished the season 11-7 and with a 4.57 ERA, and the Phillies immediately traded him away to the Braves for Gary Matthews. That was the rise and fall in one act of Bob Walk. The Phillies had a lot of, as I recall it, pitchers like that from around that period, right? They'd have guys that would come up and they would have some short period of extreme success and then, like, something, like, beyond regression. Either it would happen with the team or not. Like, it was, I don't know if they'd call them up early or they... I just looked up a guy that I remember as an example of that. It was Marty Bystrom, 
who had oh, yeah. in 1980 was the best pitcher in the National League in the six games in which he appeared, and then was never really uh, like an average pitcher even after that. His arm fell off, and he wound up with the Yankees. Yeah, he had one, I think good, he was he had one good season with the Yankees. You're right. Right, and it was just seven starts because that's all he could do. It seemed to me like he was rehabbing with the Yankees for my entire childhood, that possibly during the senior prom we were all talking about what Marty Bystrom was up to at that moment. It it was just when when you were a Yankees fan at that time, which I confess to being, it was always just that you were one pitcher away, and it might just be Marty Bystrom's labrum regenerating and him coming in to lead the staff to victory because we had no real understanding of how those things worked at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I don't think anybody had any understanding of how they worked, including the people that were making decisions for like somewhere between twelve and twenty of the teams in the majors. I remember it was something I've read. You wrote something about Andre Thornton a long time ago. Yes. And I was going back and looking at the teams that he was on, because he had a, a very good career, much better than I remembered, with some Indians teams that were, I would say that they were poorly assembled, but like there is this like glimmer of like an avant-garde decision-making <laughs> process visible in it. And they had, one of those teams had like three knuckleballers in the rotation. Yes. A- appalling. Like whose idea is this? <laughs> And yet, like, so he was just continuing to, whatever, like, hold it down in the middle of the order and be good. But, like, that is not, that doesn't seem like a decision process that was actively, it's not like a process there. Like, these are just a series of things that happened and then the team existed. And I feel like there were a lot of teams that were like that. The Yankees, what was amazing was that they were in this media capital. They were ruled by this extremely demanding tyrant. And yet they continued to roll teams like that out there. Like, just sort of, like three or four positions on the field just with giant floating question marks as a result of just that would being the industry best practices at the time. If you think about the Indians in, in that period, and, and this isn't something I touched on in that piece, but maybe I should have, but it really kind of goes to what you, you said about avant-garde or possibly even Dadaist team construction. Maybe that those are that's an oxymoron. But in that period, in 1982 and 1984, they made two huge veteran for prospect trades. In that, in 82, they, they had outfielder Von Hayes, who was this kind of all-around speed, power, do a little bit of everything guy that some somehow he never quite made everybody happy. But they traded him to the Phillies for like five players, and one of them was Julio Franco, so that automatically was a win. Was it one of them Joe Carter as well? No, see, that's the other one I was going to mention. Oh, all right, yeah. So two seasons later, mid-season, they deal Rick Sutcliffe to the Cubs, who were contending for the division title, just edged out the Mets. And Sutcliffe goes crazy. He goes 16-1 and as a member of the Cubs. He wins the Cy Young Award in basically half a season. And the Cubs got Joe Carter and then less happily Mel Hall and some other guys. But these are two huge players and i know it you know it became fashionable later to trash on joe carter cuz he was a low obp guy and franco was never a great defender and so on but it was like there was no follow up like they had these two huge wins in the trade market in a way that even today would be kind of a big deal to come away from two trades with two players like that and yet they still couldn't put a team around it's it. It's bizarre. And that's the sort of thing, too, where, I mean, I've, as a Mets fan, I don't want to steer everything back to them, but there is sort of this sense of, like, there's only so many positions on the field. Obviously, like, running a baseball team is not easy. Again, as a Mets fan, I'm aware of how difficult it can actually be. But, yeah, the idea that there was, at that time, that it was just sort of routine for teams, even teams that were capable of getting things right, that were able to, like, evaluate another team's farm system well enough to get 
Julio Franco at the beginning of what would turn into a 51 year career in baseball. <laughs> like, if you get that right, like, why do you have three knuckleballers in your starting rotation? Like, why did you choose to do that? They may well have been picking names off a list. I mean, that's really kind of what it feels like a lot of the time. Uh, who knows? I mean, it, I'd say that we've come a long way, and yet I think it's now there's a there's still teams that routinely get things extremely wrong for really idiosyncratic reasons. And I guess that's like that's part of the fun of it. I think if everybody was playing to the same template and trying to do the same sorts of things, the league would be a lot more boring and the teams would be a lot more similar. We promised last time we talked we weren't going to talk a lot of Mets this time. And last week with Jesse, we also talked a lot of Mets. So I don't want to go there, but I I did think about you in this one regard that tonight the news came down that they had disabled yet another pitcher, Zach Wheeler, with a, quote, stress reaction in his arm. And it struck me that given that this is the Mets, that a stress reaction in your arm could well refer to your arm having a psychological breakdown. Right. It's like I have a I have a stress reaction in my sinuses when I think (laughs) about what a stress reaction is actually going to wind up being once the Mets crack medical staff is done figuring out what it is. (laughs) Like they could emerge that he he actually has never had a right arm, that that was something that they'd missed over the last 18 months that it had left on vacation or something like that. It's they're a really weird organization, but they, I, I think I wrote something about this at Vice shortly before the end. It was about ba- in basketball terms, but it was about the Knicks as like the idea that a super team can't exist without its inverse in the league. That basically like a, a team that is going to get enough stuff right to really line up three top 10 players in the lineup. Some of those players are going to have to come from teams that don't value them highly enough. That that's just like the way that it works. You can't, I mean, the Golden State Warriors did get a lot right because they hit the jackpot on a few drafts and just in general were fortunate and smart in the ways that you have to be fortunate and smart. But that like the Knicks are going to give away Carmelo Anthony, who's a very useful player, to some team and they're going to do it for reasons that have nothing to do with basketball. And that's like, if they didn't do that, then the super team that winds up with Carmelo Anthony on it wouldn't exist. That like you need to have. It's like the way that the the Yankees of the 50s and 60s were basically built on buying stuff from the was it the Kansas City A's? Right. That like there needs to be a a team that is willing to or incapable of not somehow like screwing up badly enough that other teams can benefit from it. We might even see that in baseball this year in the sense that in order for Jeff Loria to finally depart baseball, he might have to trade away a good number of the decent players that are on the Marlins just to bring the payroll down. It's interesting, too, to, to see how teams are, are sort of approaching some of this stuff. The teams that don't have an approach are the ones that I think of as the most hopeless. You know, like the White Sox are terrible right now, but I think a lot of teams would trade places with them two years down the line right. or even next year. And a team that does not have an approach, I think the Mets don't have an approach, the Marlins I would say, do not really have an approach. There's an idea there, and there's, in the case of the Mets, I mean, that was a very good team as recently as last year. Just they had a lot of bad luck, and they hired the wrong guy to condition their players. But with teams like that, where they just sort of are transparently engaged in some sort of strange magical thinking exercise, or just are working along a different set of values than every other team, that's where the, the sort of inefficiencies in the market emerge now. I would have thought that the Royals 
betting it all for one more year, one more chance this year would have been the sort of thing that could have created that sort of problem. And yet it seems like they've been pretty circumspect so far. Yeah, they have. I mean, it's sort of a double-edged sword, and this has been a recurring thing that we've talked about here. They're kind of in a position where maybe they're obligated to go for it and not trade away the farm. They don't have that much of a farm to trade. So on one hand, yeah, they've they made a deal today, for example, for like uh, half the Badri's relief staff, basically. Yeah. For what that's worth, but I, it doesn't. Three of their four best relievers. Yeah, and they they didn't give away a whole lot. Well, they got everybody but Brad Hand, who's the the best one. So that guy's going to get a higher return from somebody else. But they didn't give away. It feels like a lot in that they gave away a pitching prospect who's out for the rest of the year and doesn't look to become Steve Carlton anyway. And another guy who's a teenager and is far enough away that who knows what he'll be. But the question is whether they they are going to damage themselves longer term by not trading all the guys who are free agents, because unless they're going to walk up with a wad of cash that they're not typically accustomed to playing with. They're going to lose guys, some some large number out of the group of Hosmer and Kane and Moustakis and, and so forth. And then it's going to be a very different team. And again, they don't have the farm system to replenish those guys. So if they consider the window open for this year, fine. But it's going to be closed for a while after that. I mean, I respect teams going for it and I respect teams that punt. But the idea of kind of hanging around in the middle and seeing maybe if this or that breaks right, then maybe there's a chance and who knows it's baseball. You can't ever say one way or the other. The inaction is the hardest, I think, thing to take. You know, the idea of a team that's just kind of seemingly not even just necessarily playing for next year, but so obviously not playing for this one. And then the rest of it is so sort of hard to parse. That's the Mets move this year. And it's a very frustrating thing. I mean, they're waiting to see if they, if they win four straight against the Padres, then they're only seven and a half games back in the wild card. And who knows, you know, it's just like thinking like that or living like that is not any way to be at this point. The, my personal hope for the Mets is that they find loving homes for the players that have some value that they can trade and that they call up the kids that they have to see if they're good. And I'd rather watch that team lose two out of three games than watch this one probably also honestly lose two out of three games. Like, it's just the idea of of some sense of looking forward is, I think, very much an important part of being a fan. When your team mirrors your sort of personal frustrations too closely, then you're not really getting from it the thing that you want. You know, what you just said reminds me of something that you wrote recently I really enjoyed this passage, and it also relates to people who are out of shape, which uh, includes both me and Bob Horner in the 1980s. So it it all kind of comes together, but I, I just wanted to read this back to you. We won't know that we've reached the end until we've passed it by, and we don't know if that moment has come and gone already. Our likeliest future, which is honestly no easier to imagine than a more fantastical end, is something about equally as absurd as the present. Things will change because of what we have done and what we have yet to do, and they will get better or they will get worse, but day by day they will be similar, and generally exactly what we make of them. Moment by moment, our lives are made of the decisions we make, and we live with and in the sum of all that. Every day we make it all over again as the home we want for ourselves, or the prison we can't quite quit. Wow, that's really that's really good. Who wrote that? That is you, and very recently... <laughs> And, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't, that, that's just, I'm speechless. It seems like that paragraph is so perceptive and it has applications to the arc of our lives overall, or for that matter, the managerial philosophy of sports teams. If I'm remembering right, that's about, that was about Chris Christie, right? Yes. Yeah. I spent a day listening to him host Mike Francesa's show. That was, 
the worst way to spend the slowest news day of the sports year. The uh, This is the day of the home run derby, so the first day of the All-Star break. And I spent five hours listening to Chris Christie talk <laughs> on the radio about what a nice man Roger Staubach was. Just a really <laughs> wonderful man. A lot of really edgeless stories about that. You really ponder the void when you spend five hours listening to sports talk radio, even under the best of circumstances, and this was certainly not that. But yeah, man, Chris Christie. <laughs> that was so in some ways that was an attempt to try to be empathetic, I guess, towards what he's made of himself. I think that's a bridge too far for me. I really don't have it in me to be uh to have much in the way of, of feelings for Christie. But that was what it sounds like when I when I did my best. What struck me both about what you wrote and the experience itself that he's having is it it's very odd that the two job options, having been governor of one of the 50 states, is either president of the United States or sports talk show host. There's <laughs> There should be a middle ground in there somewhere, you would think. Yeah, certainly the way that he approached being governor of New Jersey didn't leave him a whole lot of w wiggle room. He quit governing like six weeks into his second term, and then at that point was just really honing his pro wrestling persona even more than he did during his first term. <laughs> but that was all that it was. I mean, there was there's a lot of people that if they get elected to a high office and they approach it in a different sort of way, you know, maybe you're Jimmy Carter and you're building houses for people that need them in your 90s, or maybe you're whatever, Richard Nixon, and you're of counsel at some law firm, and they trot you out to impress the weirdest people on earth every now and then. But like for Christie, it was always, he was going for the downs. It was the three true outcomes approach to life. <laughs> and being a sports talk radio host, obviously there's a lot worse gigs out there. To be fair, he's not terrible at it. I mean, he's he spent a lot of his life trying to provoke people. He's a confident public speaker, and he really does know a lot about the Mets. Like he brought up Bobby Jones during that broadcast and like anytime a Mets fan is willing to admit to having cared about the Mets during the Bobby Jones administration, you're like, <laughs> all right, man, like I, I got to tip my hat. Like I, I made the same mistake, but yeah, that was a, a dark, dark realm. Honestly, I think he deserves it. I hope he gets the job and I hope he spends the rest of his life waiting to see if a caller is going to tell him that he's an asshole. Cause I think he deserves nothing less than that. For all of us who are on stage to one extent or another, I think whether you're an actor or singer, or even a writer like we are, or a politician, there's a certain narcissism involved. And I'm not necessarily saying that everybody who is a, a public person is a, a toxic narcissist or has the sort of classic clinical version of that. But there is a need that has to be met by putting yourself or your work on exhibition. And, you know, I, I often think, honestly, that anybody who does wake up in the morning and say, I can be president of the United States, that is the job for me. I am suited for that job. You're mentally ill in some way. Like, I mean, oh, yeah, for sure. It's not a job any normal person would want. Right, exactly. And you could have a lot on the ball. And we've certainly had some brilliant people as presidents and some not brilliant people as presidents. But to have kind of the the raw ego to feel that you are up to that job and up to the task of running for it and so forth. I mean, there, there's I really think there's something damaged about you in a way. There's some some safeguard that has been switched off. And Christie 
and I, I don't want to turn this into a Chris Christie thing because there's no need to kick him. When you have a 15% approval rating, really, you're being kicked 24-7 and there's no need to, to pile on. But it strikes me that between uh, the yelling at little old lady school teachers, which is how he made his rep, and going on TV during the presidential campaign and, and trying to sound be the most draconian guy when it came to Hillary Clinton, that he is going to lock her up. He is going to indict her. He is going to deport her to the damn moon if he has to. Guantanamo wouldn't be good enough for somebody like her. And I'm a former prosecutor and I know that. And then the beach thing, the beach thing more than anything else, that having been rejected for the presidency, having been rejected by Trump, having been rejected by New Jersey voters, at least poll wise. An orgy of humiliation over the course of two years. Everything that he tried to do, he abased right. himself. So it ends on a beach with him looking grotesque on a beach that he closed. Right. And that's that's not abasement. That's fuck you. That is, you know, I provoked this entirely pointless shutdown. Yeah. You can't go to the beach. Well, guess what? I don't give a damn that you can't go to the beach. It's my beach. You know, hooray for me to hell with you. And I think somebody like that, if they're going to spend the rest of their lives having people call them a jerk on talk radio, you know, whatever, that's the appropriate, you know, out of Greek mythology kind of, you know, trip to Hades. Because my point about being psychologically damaged is this. He still needs it. But this is all that he has left. It's the only way he can get it. Either giving out pathetic and ineffectual abuse via helicopter shots of him on a beach or having people call him up and insult him on the radio. Yeah. Also, honestly, that's the type of guy that can take it. Like, because he'll never believe them. He's always going to believe that he's right. <laughs> Which is like, if enough people called me an asshole, like, I would probably be like, well, you know, the, the people have spoken. Like, time to get a new haircut or whatever it is that they would be criticizing me. <laughs> so Chris Christie will never waver. Like, he will never have doubts. Which is, like, I guess another reason to be glad that he's not the president of the United States. Obviously, I, I guess I would take him over some people. You're you're really splitting hairs at that point. I know, I am. I, I don't know why I'm bending over backwards to be nice to this guy. I don't think he's ever done the same to anybody else. But it's easy for you to say now, David. You're on the good side of the bridge. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but it's free when I go the other way. So actually, it's, that's most. Of the, that's the best part about the whole thing. So now that you have, and I hope it's a short break. Although, like you said, a, a break is good sometimes, and. And you said something very similar to my own experience after leaving SB Nation. I just took kind of a year to figure out why I still wanted to write about sports or what I wanted to write in general. And it, it really did refresh me after so many years of doing this. Are you still going to be able to, whether you are writing about sports for pay or just watching it in your spare time as you figure out what the next step is, are you, are you going to be able to enjoy it? Or are you going to be able to enjoy this stretch run in baseball? I think so. I hope so. It'll be, I think, obviously less enjoyable in some ways because I don't anticipate the team that I care about being a meaningful part of it. But, you know, I think, yeah, I think, and certainly the idea of not having to write about it, I'm not having to force it. I didn't have to force it as much by the end at, at Vice. I mean, the beat that I wound up on was more of sort of a fan culture thing. And so I was writing about about people who care about weird things more than I was trying to parse the Dow of Whit Merrifield or whatever it is that, <laughs> you know, you would wind up doing if you had to write about baseball all the time. That's always been a concern with me with sports and writing about it, not just because it's a thing that I really do enjoy and I didn't want to put that at risk, but because I think 
you can tell when it doesn't work. Like you can tell when somebody is writing about sports and they don't care about it. And especially when they don't like it anymore. And there's people out there that have come to that pass where it's like, it's a job for them and it's a good job. And it's one that they can, you know, get their copy in on time and stuff like that. It makes the people that haven't curdled in that way, stand out that much more as sort of like remarkable and, and precious, you know, like in, not in the, in the precious, like in a twee sense, but I mean, just like, in the way that something extremely rare is extremely valuable. You know, no one has the right to expect you to be the same person for your entire life and to care about the same things and have the same enthusiasms. As as you were talking about that, I was I just glanced over to my bookshelves here and I have a book called A Farewell to Sport and it's by Paul Gallico. And Paul Gallico is a successful, I guess more of a sports feature writer in the 40s. And he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And he went off and he wrote a lot of kind of pulp fiction. I think the most famous is probably the Poseidon Adventure. It became that movie. But I think, you know, Ring Lardner walked away from baseball and he was as good at it as as anybody. Uh, Westbrook Pegler both became an insane anti-Semite and a political writer. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> – Really interesting second act on that guy, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there are any number of, of people though who have just said, you know what, this world that was for me from in this span of my life is not for me in this this later span, and that's that's a fair thing. the The thing that becomes difficult is when you know your the market or your personal economy or whatever and again generic you not you personally requires you to keep doing it and so you write groin pole after groin pole story even though you could give a damn who has a groin pole i would hope that you know i'd be able to get out while i could i mean obviously <laughs> i happen to be out right now although i would love to get back in for another couple decades before i move to maine but the <laughs> the thing that i always think about has uh, something to aspire to is the, and this is something that I think was, you know, the challenge that I got from my bosses that I wound up appreciating so much is the idea of being able to find um, some new way to be excited about something that I've been thinking about or that you think about for so long. And if you can't do that, then obviously you should leave. But if you can do it, I mean, if you look at Jason Stark is a guy that I always thought stood out as a especially good example of a guy who kept finding ways to care in new ways, you know, new ways to new things to see, new things to get excited about. And then was able, because he's a good writer and because he was coming from an authentic place of caring about it, was able to make them more interesting to other people. I remember he would, he started uh, a thing some years ago that was just basically sort of an around the league deal of like guys that made 25 man rosters out of spring training that he had never heard of, or like, who is this guy? And it was great. It was it was not like, you know, a especially like robust bit of investigation or whatever. It was just like really good national scale baseball writer stuff. But in doing it, he was able to, to find these people that would otherwise be anonymous and not just to sort of do like a thumbnail introduction to them in a couple of like endearing sentences. But I mean, it puts a human face on everything. It takes like the one bit of spring training that actually hasn't totally lost its value, which is like being introduced to these people and then carries that forward. It's not something that I imagine he thought about in that complicated way, but like what a fantastic thing to do. What a fucking good idea that no one had before him. 
if you can do that once or twice over the course of a couple decades, then like you'll have made obviously your readers happier, but it's also like a way to sort of just hit reset on your own stuff, you know, make it possible to continue to do good work because you found some new thing to care about. I was trying to decide whether Jason Stark's enthusiasm, which was always palpable, was something that he was just able to self-regenerate all the time over a period of decades, or was he, whenever he was not visible to us, whenever he was on a break, he was flying overseas to some orgiastic nudist resort <laughs> where he would just spend a month in the most hedonistic pursuits possible and and just sort of burn all the negative stuff out of his system and then having participated in that come back and just be really psyched about who is going to set a new record for triples. Yeah. <laughs> I encourage, I encourage you to ask him about the orgiastic part of it. It's really interesting. But no, I mean I, that's definitely the one thing about that like writing about sports and then in my case writing about more than one sport that like is I, I mean I've had to sort of like moderate my intake in a lot of ways just because it's like the way that if you were like a, a restaurant critic or whatever, I'd imagine you have to be more thoughtful about the meals that you don't eat in restaurants, you know, that like, right. that, because you can't just like be dominating burgers 24 seven, like you'll die. That's not going to happen to me. <laughs> but at the same time, it's, you know, if I'm watching like a stupid bad basketball game for no reason, like, I mean, there may be only so many hours of enjoying basketball in my life. I don't know what that finite number is. But I do know that it's like probably unwise to waste it on like uh, Illinois, Wisconsin on a Tuesday night when both teams are shooting badly. The secret, I think, of all good writing, no matter what it is that you do, is that you do need a, a big intake and it can't just be that specific thing, particularly in sports. So, I mean, whatever is going to give you the next metaphor, the next juxtaposition, the next idea that is not necessarily going to come out of watching people dribble up and down the quarter, pass a football, you, you need to be able to make analogies. And analogies, uh, just by definition, will often come from the outside. And maybe that's watching a competition on the Food Network, or maybe that's actually leaving the house. And I, I don't, I don't do it often. It's enough. not. No, you're you're talking crazy. Don't yeah, even joke about it. I know it's. A, you know. You know what? I was uh, with my wife in New York recently. And I found occasion to walk into Central Park and there was a woman coming towards us. She was pushing a baby carriage and I thought, oh, how lovely. It's a nice day. She's going out with her baby. And as she passed us, I looked into the to the baby carriage and it was not a baby, but a cat. Oh, boy. It was a, a full-grown, very mellow, very relaxed cat just dozing in the afternoon sun in Central Park. Now, here's the thing about that. First of all, it now vastly opened the number of possibilities for every baby carriage that come towards, comes towards me for the rest of my life. I will not know what is in it until I check. I yeah. cannot safely assume that it's a baby. You are not make any assumptions about that. <laughs> I'm going to tuck that, that experience away somewhere. And I don't know where in the wide, wide world of Mike Trout I'm going to be able to, to plug that in someplace. But I know I will at some point. That's the, the fun part of being alive, right? You get surprised by stuff. You get to see things that you don't expect to see. And then, like, yeah, if you have to f use that to, you know, like, for work to try to find a way to convey surprise about something that's, like, it's honestly not that surprising, you know, if, like, Jer Jerry Blevins throws a wild pitch. But, like, <laughs> if in some way, like, you encountering, like, a sacked-out cat in a baby carriage in Central Park helps prime the pump for having to do that bit of descriptive writing, then, like... 
I mean, I think it's even if it's not research, it's worth doing. <laughs> but if you, if you file, <laughs> if you can file it under research, then all the better. As we come to the usual uh, stroking of the midnight hour, sounded rather pornographic. Yeah, leave it. You got to leave it though. I oh, I will absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know what it means necessarily, but I've, I've cultivated a reputation in my life that I can say almost anything like what's for dinner, hun. And people will just think I meant something dirty. Yeah. That's what, that's why they call it the essential Steve. At <laughs> and I worked hard to earn it. Unfortunately, not on vacation with Jason Stark. He, always keeping the good stuff to himself. Jason Stark, these secret billionaires Island playgrounds. Fountain of youth. So what are you looking forward to here as we head to the to the trading deadline or maybe just this, the second half of baseball? We've got the Dodgers and the Astros running away with it. The Cubs seem to have woken up a bit and are neck and neck with the Brewers. The Indians have reasserted themselves and are back on top of the AL Central after having this uh, anomalous run of, of twins on top. What are you psyched to see as we as we head out into the rest of the season here? I mean, it's not like a particular thing. I'm interested just in seeing how weird the trade deadline actually gets. I mean, I think that this trend towards like, you know, multi-reliever packages or whatever, where you just get like all the best relievers from some team that is interesting. Like the Dodgers trading for you, Darvish, is significantly more interesting. Like if stuff like that happens, I worry a little bit about teams getting that top heavy. But I think the thing that leavens that for me, because I don't necessarily need to watch like a bunch of all-star teams roll over everybody en route to meeting each other later in October. I mean, I will watch it and I'll enjoy it. But something like watching the uh, the White Sox sort of come do, like the prospects that they have. And then even this year, I think with the Yankees, that I mean, there's something about what they managed to pull off last year that it's similar to what the Celtics did in the NBA in the sense that it's this marquee franchise that did a kind of a limited hangout tank that like enabled them to totally replenish the, you know, the youth on their roster without the team ever actually getting that bad. And that like the, I mean, it's hard for me to say that I'm excited about a Yankees team. I don't really know that I ever have been, but I'm really interested in seeing those young players sort of emerge as whatever it is that they're going to be in a pennant race. And then, you know, it's not like I'm going to be seeking out the White Sox. I'm not going to tell you that that's something I've been doing, but it's interesting to see the, uh, as teams go for it, seeing, you know, other teams sort of figure out what, they can do to be on that sort of Astros path one way or the other. So the personnel moves are going to be interesting to me because really like very few of these races are especially compelling to me at the moment. I think that'll change, you know, as we get deeper into the season, it's not even August yet. There's a lot of boring baseball before it starts getting cool again, but trying to figure out what the the rebuilding teams are doing and sort of getting a sense of what those teams could be like the, the possibility of that is more interesting to me than I think the, the likelihood of, the baseball that we're going to see in August, right? What's your answer to that question? I always root for teams to be really, really good or really, really bad. It's the historian in me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always out there for somebody to win 120 or lose 120. And mostly, except for the odd, you know, Tigers team from the beginning of this century, that it doesn't happen. And the Phillies right now are, are the team that are going to be the, the big losers, although the Giants are challenging them for that. And that's interesting in a way, because as people noted, the Giants hit the 100-game mark on Sunday, and they have the worst record that they've had since 1955 or something at this point in the season. So it's interesting how things can go so wrong. And 
both the Phillies and the Giants, I, I, I think there are interesting things to dissect there in, in terms of, of folly and how they went wrong. And then what the Astros and Dodgers are doing in winning basically two thirds of their games each is also kind of ridiculous. Like, you know, the upper boundaries for a team is, you know, 70%, something like that. But they, both those teams could be historic in a way if they could just stay healthy. So in some ways, it's not the most exciting pursuit to play Dodgers math or Astros math and just see how many wins they can roll up day after day, but that they might join these these lists of extremely great, extremely at least regular season successful teams like the 54 Indians or the 2001 Mariners, neither of whom did anything, by the way. That's kind of a neat thing for me. Yeah, no, it's definitely, and it's exciting too in that sense of uh, this is not the, a time of year that necessarily has very much in the way of like moment attached to it. Like it is hard to be talking about baseball in the third week of July and have it be like, yeah, there's some real, that's going to be real interesting, the shit that's coming up over the next like whatever seven weeks of baseball before things really start to become like properly tense. But yeah, the possibility that there could be something significant happening, like right now, like that's enough to get me through like at least a few innings of pretty much any game. David, I greatly appreciate your coming on at a trying time and bringing your usual sardonic levity to the proceedings. It's no less than I would have expected. And I know that if not the New Yorker itself, then something of of that nature beckons in the near future. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. It's always good talking to you. Hokey smokes, Bullwinkle. We've made it to the end of another program. I'm kicking myself because when we were talking about Indians trades in the early 1980s, I also should have brought up the 1980 swap for Burt Blylevin and the 1983 swap for Brooke Jacoby and Brett Butler that fell nicely between the Von Hayes and the Rick Sutcliffe deal. Just mentally pencil those in there, won't you? For more of David, you can go to Twitter and follow him at David underscore J underscore Roth. And you can follow me at Go Stephen Goldman because, let's face it, it's raining outside. Where else do you have to go? You can also write the show, by which I mean me, at infiniteinning at gmail.com. I hear rumors there's actually a sponsor now, but I'm sticking to my guns. This episode is brought to you by the number 28. Our producer suffered a blow to the head and has been walking around convinced he's Edgar Allan Poe. When I ask him to improve the quality of the show, he just looks at me and says, Right? Nevermore. I think he's a bit confused about what kind of bird that is. Our theme song, which you have heard throughout the episode and are listening to now, was composed by myself and Dr. Richard Mooring, who, in seventh grade, I saw smear a peanut butter sandwich right down somebody's arm. You should have been there. Well, if I'm not traded to the Giants for Eduardo Nunez and a player to be named later, I'll be back next week with Cliff Corcoran, and we'll have more tales and discussion from inside the infinite inning. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.